one of the great ideas of Scripture, one of the great truths of Scripture, I would argue that it might be the great truth of Scripture, is that God's intent for His creation is abundant flourishing. There is something about that core idea that speaks to the nature and the heart of who God is. In contrast to all of the gods that are worshipped in the nations around Israel, Yahweh is the only God who creates because He desires relationship with His people. He's the only God who creates with a mindset of flourishing for His people and everything that He creates and all people in the world. And it tells us something about the, the very nature of who God is, which is why I think it is such a core idea, truth of Scripture. Jesus comes and, and reiterates this idea when in John 10, he talks about being the good shepherd. And he says in, in chapter 10, verse 10, he says, the thief comes to, to kill, to steal, to destroy, but I have come to give life and to give it abundantly. There is in the, in the coming of Christ this mindset of restoring our understanding of who God is and, and what God desires for all people, and that is abundant life, shalom, overwhelming flourishing. It's always been God's intent, and it always will be God's intent. And that's what intrigues me about Psalm 133. Because in the beginning of this psalm, the writer says, how, how wonderful, how pleasant it is when people, God's people, live together in unity. There is a sense in which he is describing this flourishing of God. This design of God for all of creation. This design of God for all of his people to flourish, to be more than we think we could be, to be more than we often believe God wants us to be, to, to catch a glimpse of the greatness of God and the great plans of God and the great desires of God for His people and ultimately for all people. What's intriguing about this psalm is that the writer of the psalm here says it's not just wonderful and pleasant, that's not just God's plan, but he connects that blessing with unity. And I'm not sure that we always make that connection. This is a psalm of ascents. It's one of those psalms that the, the people of Israel sing as they march together into Jerusalem and to the temple for the high holy days of their year. For all the great feasts, this is one of the hymns, one of the songs that they sing as they march to worship. It's intriguing to me that as they march to worship, they sing a song about unity. I can, you know, certainly, the, you would understand songs that sing about the praise of God, they sing about the greatness of God, they sing about the glory of God, they sing about all the great things God has done, and there are certainly those songs of ascent that they sing as well. But I suspect it might be just a tad surprising to us that as they come to worship on these great high holy days, one of the things that they sing about is unity and how awesome and wonderful it is. 
I suspect it's because Israel has a tendency to think of, of it as a nation, think of themselves more as 12 separate tribes than one nation made up of 12 tribes. You read through the history of Israel, and there are many occurrences where one tribe is fighting another tribe. When one tribe says, we're better than that tribe, I wish we had what they have. Why do they get that and we get this? And you, you hear this infighting all the time. And as the, as the people come together for worship, the writer of the psalm is saying, that's not what God's people do. Let me remind you that when we come for worship, there is a spirit of unity that is necessary. And let's be honest, you and I have a tendency to divide ourselves into tribes too. They aren't the names of the children of Jacob. We use lots of other ways to, to, to uh, divide ourselves into tribes. We have theological tribes and ideological tribes. And we have tribes that, that are all, you think of any way in which we might possibly differentiate ourselves. And we are continually tempted and drawn to divide ourselves into tribes. But as the people of God, we're continually being called back to a spirit of unity. I love the description that the writer of the psalm gives us about what this, about what this unity looks like. He says in verses 2 and 3, this harmony, this unity is as precious as the anointing oil that was poured over Aaron's head that ran down his beard and onto the border of his robe. Harmony is as refreshing as the dew from Mount Hermon that falls on the mountains of Zion. Isn't it interesting, this image of the oil being poured on Aaron's head? The oil in the Old Testament is typically a symbol of the Holy Spirit. When the oil is, is poured out, when the oil is distributed, it is a, it is a reminder for the, for the people of Israel that God's Spirit is present and God's Spirit is at work. And so when Saul and David are anointed king, Samuel pours oil over their heads to remind them and the people that God's Spirit is upon them. When Aaron is anointed as the high priest, oil is poured over him. To say the Holy Spirit is upon him. What's interesting is it's not a trickle. It, it's not, it's not a, a, a little uh, sprinkling. It is, he's pouring as much oil as he possibly can. And the description of the oil running down Aaron's head, into his beard, on his, on his collar, all down his robe. This is a lot of oil. It's as if they'd taken one of those great big buckets uh, that you get, uh, you know, uh, five-gallon buckets, filled it up with oil, and just dumped it over his head. And it's just pouring over him, and it reminds us that where God is present, there is always abundance. And unity is about experiencing not just a trickle of God's grace, not just a trickle of God's presence, but the abundance of God's presence. God is always more generous with us than we could ever imagine him to be. And then he talks about the dew of Hermon running down. It's like, it's like the dew of Hermon running into the river Jordan. As the Psalm 42 talks about, it talks about how the, the dew of Hermon, Hermon's waters run down and, and help to replenish the river Jordan, which is a life-giving source for the people of Israel. 
And so the psalmist is saying this, this abundance of God that comes from unity is life-giving. It is, it is, what, is, what, is what gives us the life of God when, we have our, when we're connected together in the unity of God. And I think sometimes we think unity is just something peripheral to the kingdom. I mean, it's great when we live in unity. It's, it's a really good thing that we, to, to strive for. But, you know, there are other things that are far more important than that. But the writer of this psalm, reiterating what we read many places in Scripture, seems to think of it differently. I do find it intriguing that, that the two symbols he gives us are oil and water. Two things that, that don't mix very well, right? I, I can't help but think that's intentional. And a number of scholars uh, reiterate that point and say, yeah, I think that's intentional. It's as if he is saying to be in unity as God's people is not, is not to be just clones of one another. It's, he's not talking about sameness. He's not getting, saying, you need to get rid of all the things that, that make you different from other people. He's not saying everybody should have the same gift. He's not saying everybody should have the same abilities. He's not saying everybody should think about things the exact same way. That's not unity. It's not, as one, as one writer says, it's not unanimity as if we all think exactly the same. And it's not uniformity as if we all act exactly the same. It is rather, it's oneness of mind and heart in Christ. It's this having this one mind that whatever gifts we have, whatever ways we may be different, they're so focused on Christ that our differences, instead of dividing us, actually make us stronger, better, more whole. I think sometimes we think the only way to unity is to, is to make everybody exactly the same. If God wanted that, if that's what God's picture of unity was, He would have created us all the same. He would have given us all the same gifts. We would think about things all the same way. We'd have all have the same experiences, all the same perspectives. We don't. And so Paul says, as, as Emily uh, talked about the body earlier in the children's story, Paul talks about the body, and he doesn't say, boy, if you were really un in unity... All of you would be an I. No, he says, you're all different. And that's great. That's exactly what God wants. The question is, are you going to run off and do your own thing? Or are you going to try to make everybody else look like you? Or are you going to join who you are and what you are into the larger body so that it becomes what it's intended to be and do what it's intended to do? I think it was C.S. Lewis who said that, um, you know, you go to the symphony to hear all of the notes. No one wants to go to a symphony and hear all the instruments playing the same note. I mean, even junior high bands make an attempt to play different notes. They used to play different notes. This isn't maybe the notes they were supposed to play. At least that was my experience when I was in junior high band. But the point is, you want it to sound like a symphony. You want it to have harmony. And you can only have harmony if people are playing different notes, but together. 
and the strength of the church and the value of God's people is not all of us being the same. It's all of us having the same heart and mind. I, mean, I keep coming back to over and over again to Revelation 7 where Paul says, I looked and there before me was a vast crowd from every nation and tribe and people and language. And they were standing in front of the throne before the Lamb, and they were clothed in white robes, and they held palm branches in their hands, and they worshiped God. It took me a long time to, to see. But all of a sudden, I remember one day it struck me, how does John know that there are people from every nation and tribe and language? Because he can see it, and he can hear it. And if this is the heavenly vision that John gives us of not everyone exactly the same, but people with all of their diversity focusing on worshiping Christ, then I think that ought to be the mindset for us now as well. That's our calling. And to give thanks for our diversity, to give thanks for the different differences of who we are, but to bring who we are together in Christ. Now, of course, we talk about that kind of unity. It's complicated. It's hard. It's easy to live in unity when you're off by yourself. At least for a little bit until you start thinking. And then if you're like me, your mind starts fighting with it. With it. The real challenge of biblical unity is living together. Being together. But don't we think the grace of God is big enough to help us with that? I think if we're going to have that kind of unity, and we're going to have the kind of unity that, that comes from us taking all the ways in which we're different and bringing them together, focused on Christ, I think there are some things that we're going to have to have at the forefront of our minds and how we act and what we do. I think one of those is forgiveness. The words, please forgive me, should be on the front of our tongues every moment of every day. Because when you bring people together, we're going to hurt each other. We're going to do things that are difficult for each other. We're going to stretch each other. We're going to strain each other. And what will tear apart unity as quickly as anything is a refusal to say, that's my fault. Forgive me. If you're going to have unity, forgiveness has to be a part of that. And so that's why, I think that's why Jesus included in the great prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgiveness. I think there needs to be submission. When Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, this is a letter to the church about the church. And he writes for four and a half chapters. And he says, you know, here's what it means to be the church. And he gets to chapter 5 in the middle of that. And he starts talking about their relationships with each other. And he starts that section by saying, here's what you, really where you need to focus. Here's where, your, here's where your thought needs to be. Submit to one another. And do it out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another because Christ is so vital to you. Submit to one another. That's a vulnerable, vulnerable place to be. To be in a position of saying we, we willingly submit ourselves to other people makes us feel very vulnerable. But that's the call of the gospel. 
And some point we have to come to the place of saying, it's not about me lording over other people. It's about me being willing to submit myself to others because of Christ. Isn't it Jesus himself who had all power, who gets down on his hands and knees and washes the feet of his disciples and then says, this is what I want you to do? And you know, when that vulnerability begins to creep into our minds and hearts, it often is accompanied by fear. One of the greatest divisive things for us is fear. You know, we're all going to be afraid. That's just, that's just being human. But when we allow fear to drive us, when we allow fear to control us, when we allow fear to, to be what, how we make our decisions, and what gets in between us, it will never lead to unity. Fear will never lead to unity. It always leads to divisiveness. We live in a world in which fear is a tool so many people use to get folks onto their side. You, you see that in politics. You see that even within the church. The mantra is, if you, if you don't do what I think you should do, the consequences are going to be horrific. And we hear that kind of thing over and over again. And it doesn't mean that we, we don't speak the truth. It doesn't mean that we, we can't say what we think. It doesn't mean we can't feel what we feel. It doesn't mean we can't believe what we believe about things. But fear is not going to bring unity. In fact, John writes in his first letter, perfect love casts out fear. Jesus, who is perfect love, casts out fear. And that's why I think Paul says that we submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. I think you put that with what John says. What they're both saying is Jesus has a way of dissipating our fear when our focus is on him. And that's where unity comes. And it's not agree to disagree. You know, I remember I had somebody tell me that a number of years ago. and it, it, It's something that keeps coming back to me. Because agree to agree is really about, I'm right, you're wrong. And if you just listen to my arguments long enough, you'll see I'm right, you're wrong. Agree to disagree is, well, you're an idiot, but I'll let you go, and we'll just have to, all of us, work with that, right? I mean, there's a sense where that's the underlying idea of what we're saying. I'm right, I'm not giving up anything for, for what you, your position, you're not going to give up anything for my position, so I guess we'll just exist like this. But that's not unity. That's not loving each other. That's not caring for each other. What we really need to be thinking about is not how can I convince you I'm right and you're wrong, but rather, what is it that God may want to say to me through you? Because none of us have arrived. None of us have figured everything out. Hopefully we've figured out a lot of things, but none of us have gotten to the point and ever will get to the point where we say, I know everything. And that means there's always things for us to learn. And it fascinates me how God likes to use unlikely ways to teach us, often through people who have different viewpoints than we do. And that means we have to come with a spirit of listening, genuinely listening to people taking them seriously, hearing them out, 
processing what people are saying, listening. I remember when I was in high school choir, uh, I was just starting to feel comfortable singing in public. And so, you know, I, 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 I love to sing. And so I, I was in the church choir in high school. And most everybody else was a lot older than me. But, you know, they invited me to join the choir. and It was fun. And I had a great time. I probably drove the director crazy with my antics. But anyway, uh, you know, my, my goal was that I thought, well, we should all sing. I'll sing as loudly as I can because we want the sound to be big. And one day a choir director pulled me aside and said, look, you've got to stop doing that. If I wanted you to sing a solo, I would ask you to sing a solo. You're in a choir. And when you're in a choir, you have to think differently about how you sing. And he said, what I want you to do is I want you to listen more carefully to your voice and to match the volume of your voice to the volume of the people around you. And that will enable all of the sound to be much more harmonious, which is what our intent is. That's been a little while back since I was in high school. I have never forgotten that. And I think there is something about that in the church that we want to think that because we, we believe so much in what we believe in and because we believe we're right, we try to be the loudest voice when in reality we need to, we need to let our voice be in consonant with the voices around us so that we can hear and listen and learn and grow and mature and develop. And not every voice around us we may come to the conclusion is right. But in unity, when our commitment is to the loving unity of the church, we respect people enough and we love people enough to hear them out and to listen to them and to be open to God's Spirit saying, that's something you need to hear. Because there's something in your life that I want to work on and I want to use them to do that. And it creates the spirit of unity in the church. I mean, there's a sense in which what the Israelites sing, what we do as the church, that ultimately it's about witness. I mean, God called out Israel to be his people, not just so they could be his people, but so they could be his witnesses to the rest of the nations around them. And God calls the church not just to be his people, but to be his witnesses to the world around us. If we treat each other and have the mindset toward each other that everybody else does, then what witness do we really have? Maybe that's why Jesus says to his disciples in, in, in those, those, some of the last words in John 13. He says, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love each other. He didn't say, everyone will know you're my disciples if you believe all the right things, as important as that is. He didn't say, you'll, everyone will know you're my disciples if you have the right ideology, as important as that can be. He said, he didn't say, You'll be my disciples if you have the right political mindset, as important as that can be. He said, they'll know you're my disciples if you love each other. If there's something about the way you treat each other that is different from what they normally see. And that witness is so vital. I mean, ultimately, all of this is rooted in the Trinity. I mean, unity is one, of the, is one of the key Trinitarian doctrines. Because Jesus says, the Father and I are one. The Spirit leads Jesus where he's going to go. 
When you see, when you think about the Trinity, it, it is, there is a sense of unity about the Trinity. A unity of love and relationship. And every call to unity is a call to, to be what the Trinity is. And in that, that's why, that's why unity is, a, is an opportunity to experience the glorious blessing and abundance of God. Because we are entering ourselves into the very nature of who God is and the very nature of God in His kingdom. That kind of love and grace toward each other that God has toward us and that we see exhibited kind of love and relationship of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul begins this letter by, by chastising them for their divisiveness that's developed in them. He says, some of you are saying, I follow Paulus, I follow Peter, I follow Paul. He said, you're missing the point. It's about following Jesus. And he says to them, Here, here's the solution that, I'm gonna, that I want you to, to lean toward, that I want you to embrace. In verse 18, he says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are headed to destruction, but are being saved, know it's the very power of God. Unity is rooted in the message of the cross. And it's not just that event on that Friday afternoon. It's about, it's about the message of the cross. It's the whole idea, the whole mindset, the whole attitude of the cross. Of surrender and submission and forgiveness and listening and love. That can only come from Christ himself. This is a table of unity. This is a table in which that unites us and brings us together. And even though we may be in a wide variety of places today, we are united in Christ. We are united in the grace of Christ that is so clearly given to us and what we experience in this table. This is an invitation to life abundant. This is an invitation to the flourishing of God. When we hear God's invitation to be people who love each other, who find great joy and peace in the unity of brothers and sisters in Christ. Holy Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy to us. We thank you that your designs for us and your desires for us are so much greater and bigger than any of us could ever imagine. Give us a heart a mind, a desire, a passion to be in unity, in love through Christ with our brothers and sisters. Father, may your blessing rest upon the bread and the cup that as we eat and drink, we may know the power of the crucified, risen, returning Christ. 
In his name we pray. Amen.